the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. About eight minutes after four o'clock is our time. We're glad to have you with us today. Um, not quite sure what's happening in our second hour. We had an opportunity to talk with uh, Howard Kurtz earlier today. Um, he's the author most recently of Media Madness and uh, conducted the interview. We had some technical difficulties. We'll let you know if that's uh, possible to share with you, but that's what I'm, I'm hoping we can do. Otherwise, um, I also had a conversation with Teresa Rusink. She's with 40 Days for Life, and we may have an opportunity to share that conversation with you as well, but we'll find out what the the technical answer to that question is. Well, taking a quick look at the news, President Trump's second budget is going to cut $3 trillion in spending over the next 10 years. White House officials indicated Sunday night, uh, but it won't be balanced, referring to the budget. Instead of balancing the budget, which was the war cry of uh, Republicans for many years under the previous administration, the Trump administration is going to tout lowering the debt relative to the economy in its budget document uh, released today. As a nation, we face difficult times, challenging uh, challenged rather by a crumbling infrastructure, growing deficits, rogue nations, irresponsible Washington spending. That's a quote from Dick Mulvaney. He's the director of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, in a statement Sunday evening, he went on to say that through this budget proposal, it's clear that the president and this administration are determined to reverse these trends and ensure greater prosperity for the hardworking American taxpayer. End quote. Well, last year, Mulvaney authored budget um, for, for fiscal year 2018 did reach balance in the 10th year through a combination of uh, major cuts of, to safety net programs and domestic government programs, $3.5 trillion in cuts over 10 years altogether, and rosy assumptions about economic growth. Well, the economic growth is going pretty well, but this year's version won't reduce spending by as much with only about $3 trillion in spending cuts, according to the White House. Now, the president's budget is not law or legislation. It's sort of of a, a template. Congress sets governing uh, government spending, but Trump's budget to be named efficient, effective, accountable, an American budget is officially a request to Congress and a statement of the administration's priorities. Conservatives, for years, they've set a goal of balancing the budget on paper, criticized President Obama for not reaching balance in his budget documents. But that target fell out, uh, out of reach in the last year after Republicans enacted a $1.5 trillion tax cut, then struck a spending deal with Democrats to add around $320 billion to the deficit in the next two years. Well, adding to the complications, balancing the budget in a 10-year time frame is more difficult every year because more baby boomers are taking their retirement benefits in the later years in the budget. Nevertheless, the country's fiscal situation can be improved without balancing the budget. We're now being told as long as the economy grows faster than the debt, the debt will shrink relative to the size of the economy. Now, is that possible? 
The answer is yes. Is it probable? Big question mark. Well, today, the federal debt held by the public is about 75 percent of the country's gross domestic product. That's up from 33 percent prior to the financial crisis. Last year's budget claimed Trump's plan would lower the debt by uh, below 60 percent of GDP. Well, on Sunday night, the Office of Management and Budget said that the fiscal year 2019 budget would also lower the ratio, but didn't say by how much. Just like every American family, the budget makes hard choices. Find what uh, we must cut where we can reduce what we borrow. Again, Mulvaney in his uh, statement. It's with respect for the hard work of the American people that we spend their tax dollars efficiently, effectively, and with accountability, end quote. And although the budget is sure to call for many sizable spending cuts of the kind Congress has demonstrated are not politically viable, it's also going to include spending increases for Trump's pet projects. For example, it's going to set aside $200 billion for the infrastructure program that Trump aims to pass with Democratic help. Also, $23 billion is included for border security, with $18 billion airmarked for the wall on the southern border that Trump made the centerpiece of his campaign agenda. The administration is also proposing new spending on veterans benefits, on measures that combat the opioid crisis. The budget set to be released in full, or was this morning, the budget would include $200 billion in federal dollars that Trump hopes will spur $1.5 trillion in infrastructure spending among government and private sources during the next 10 years. And according to the White House fact sheet, the budget includes some policy proposals that would cut federal regulations, allow projects to be built faster. The two-year budget deal agreed upon uh, by Congress leaders last week could mean $21 billion to jumpstart the infrastructure plan, according to the outline. And the president also wants $23 billion for border security and immigration enforcement. That's less than a group of Republican senators set to be introduced uh, is proposing to spend as part of the deal on the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA. And according to the White House, the president wants to spend $782 million to hire 2,750 more law enforcement officers and agents at the Customs and Border Protection and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Well, the budget also proposes spending $2.7 billion to pay for 52,000 illegal immigrants to be held in federal custody at any one time. And the president wants to spend $85.5 billion to improve medical care for veterans. The budget includes $17 billion to fight the opioid addiction crisis in the U.S., and that includes $3 billion in new funding in 2018, $10 billion in new funding in 2019. Now, those are a lot of really big numbers. It's difficult to comprehend what they may or may not mean with, you know, look at my checkbook. There's no billion anywhere in there. Nonetheless, that's the overview. That's the suggestion that the president is making to Congress that will ultimately set the budget if they actually uh, find that they can do that. And we will follow what happens next. Um, as it is contemplated by those who will ultimately make those decisions. So we'll uh, uh, we'll talk uh, more about that as the time approaches. Also, that Senate budget deal, uh, I appreciated the fact that um, one source suggested that it is a, a deal that's bipartisanism, bipartisanship. There's no, no such word as bipartisanism. It's bipartisanship. At its worst, nothing brings together two political parties in Washington like a bill that lets them spend more taxpayer money. Just look at the backslapping going on after the Senate agreed to a budget-busting deal that prevented the government from being shut, you know, less than a few hours. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, he crowed about how the Senate leadership worked hard to find common ground. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, he added that, I believe we have reached a budget deal that neither uh, side loves, but both sides can be proud of. That's compromise. That's governing. If this budget agrees, upon is uh, what passes for governing in Washington. We'd likely 
I'd like to see less of it, not more, when you look at what's actually been approved. Mainly what this bill does is blow up the 2011 spending caps imposed by Republicans in Congress in exchange for lifting the debt ceiling. Uh, that have uh, uh, served as an effective check on lawmakers' unquenchable desire to spend more of your money, a desire equally shared by both sides of the aisle. As Stephen Moore, whose uh, column appears um, uh, on... uh, um, Oh, I can't even think of the name of the site. It'll come to me in just a moment. Uh, Anyway, as Stephen Moore's column put it, the uh, pro-spending lobby is in both parties, has come to despise the fiscal handcuffs of budget caps and the threat of across-the-board sequester cuts. Under the Senate budget agreement, the caps on military spending will go up $80 billion in the current fiscal year. It starts in October. $85 billion in the uh, the next. In exchange for that, Republicans agreed to lifting the caps on non-defense spending by $63 billion this year, $68 billion the next. So... Wow. Great bipartisan budget deal that we'll all be paying for for some time to come. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 23 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Senate has started an open debate on immigration. The outcome is certainly far from certain, but with a spending deal now uh, completed, Congress is starting their efforts this week to pass bipartisan immigration reform. Uh, Starting today with a rare open-ended Senate debate, it's set to uh, focus largely on the future of tens of thousands of immigrants in the country known as Dreamers, brought into the country by their adult parents while they were still minors. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, recently vowed that as long as the federal government stays solvent and open, that he would allow such debate and see that uh, proposals get a floor vote and the the, uh, Dreamers, rather, temporary deportation protections expiring on the 5th would be an incentive to move forward. Senator Jeff Flake, he expected expressed optimism on Sunday that the uh, Democrats and the Republicans in the Senate could agree on a, on legislation that President Trump would then sign into law. Now, he's been a little bit all over the place in terms of what his priorities are, but he went on to say on NBC News that I do think that we can get something done this week. Now, that's optimistic. We're going to have something in the Senate that we haven't had in a while. It's a real debate on an issue. Hmm. But if there is a problem in the end and we can't reach that agreement, I think that these uh, dreamers need to be protected. Flake went on to say he has already talked about an alternative or scaled back immigration reform plan limited to border security fund uh, funding and a three year extension of DACA, which protects the roughly 700,000 dreamers brought into the U.S. illegally as children. Now, that number is disputed. It's closer to one point five, one point eight. But nonetheless, we'll quote uh, the a good senator at 700,000. Meanwhile, the population. The possibility of immigration reform in the GOP-controlled House appears uh, perhaps less likely. Speaker Ryan also has vowed uh, to hold a robust, I have no doubt it will be robust, constructive, eh, not so much, bipartisan debate on the issue. But they've, uh, he suggested that they allow a vote only on proposals that the president would, in fact, sign into law. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi last week pushed the issue, particularly protection for dreamers, with that eight-hour floor speech in uh, heels, uh, calling for Ryan to make the same deal the chamber in the uh, on the Senate side made with uh, Democrats and Mitch McConnell. Well, he didn't make the deal, but the debate will begin in earnest. Bring everything to the floor, the California Democrats said the next day. Well, um, Speaker Ryan also appeared to be headed for a showdown over immigration with the House Freedom Caucus, a conservative group pushing a hardline reform plan more reflective of what the president campaigned on. The bill by Virginia Republican Bob Goodlot, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, he offers a legislative fix to DACA, border security 
Security funding changes to the so-called change migration that allows people to bring extended family into the country and changing a federal immigration program from lottery based to merit based. The Freedom Caucus is going to be in the middle of that. The group member the and Ohio uh, GOP representative Jim Jordan uh, said speaking on Fox News this Sunday. Well, GOP congressional leaders, they've suggested the bill would have little chance of passing in the Senate where Republicans would need support from at least nine chamber Democrats to get the minimum 60 votes for passage. All in all, it sounds like there's not going to be broad agreement on either chamber. Still, the most influential voice in the debate may be on the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue. If the aim to pass uh, is to pass legislation and a legislative solution soon, the president remains a crucial and at times complicating player. Democrats and Republicans have said they cannot read Trump's position on key points, which apparently has led some to urge the White House to minimize its role in the debate at all. Yet Trump's ultimate support will be vital if Congress, in fact, overcomes the election year pressures against compromise. No deal crafted in the Senate. That's likely to see the light of day in uh, the more conservative House without the president's blessing and promise to sell compromise to his base. So the back and forth has begun in earnest, at least on the Senate side, with the House promising to take the issue up sooner rather than later with less uh, hope, less chance of a broad agreement. In other news, the White House uh, on Friday told Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee to redraft their rebuttal to the controversial GOP memo alleging government surveillance abuse during the 2016 presidential campaign, saying the sensitive details need to be stripped out before the document can be made public. Now, some had suggested on the GOP side that they were deliberately left in, strategizing that the president would redact large portions of it and it could be pointed to as, see, the president was not fair with this side of the aisle. The message was sent to the committee on Friday in a letter from White House counsel Don McGahn. Although the president is inclined to declassify the February 5th memorandum because the memorandum contains numerous properly classified and especially sensitive passages. He is unable to do so at this time, McGahn wrote. However, given the public interest in transparency in these unprecedented circumstances, the president has directed the Justice Department personnel to be available to give technical assistance to the committee should the committee wish to revise the February 5th memorandum to mitigate the risks identified by the department, McGahn concluded. The president encouraged the committee to undertake these efforts. The executive branch stands ready and uh, ready to review any substantial Uh, and subsequent drafts of the February 5th memorandum for declassification at the earliest opportunity. Now, it's interesting because the uh, Democrats, prior to the release of the GOP memo, were accusing them of uh, providing information uh, that would undermine the ability for the FBI and the Justice Department to function. However, in the Democrat memo, there's enough of it that needs to be redacted that it was sent back. Uh, providing the information that they criticized the GOP, uh, GOP plan for having contained, which now um, we know was not in that version of the memo. Anyway, a letter signed by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and FBI Director Christopher Ray accompanied McGahn's response. In that accompanying letter, the two men noted a version of the document that identifies in highlighted text information the release of which would present such concerns in light of longstanding principles regarding the protection of intelligence sources and methods ongoing investigations and other similarly sensitive information. So the thing that they were criticizing the GOP for, including, which is sources and methods, apparently was a part of the Democrat version. We have further identified in red boxes the subset of such information for which national security or law enforcement concerns are especially significant. Our determinations have taken into account the information previously declassified by the president as communicated in a letter 
to HPSCI Chairman Duncan uh, uh, Devin Nunez, dated February 2nd, 2018. Well, earlier this week, the House Intelligence Committee approved the release of the Democrat memo, uh, giving uh, Trump five days to consider whether he should block publication for national security reasons. For the moment, the White House letter halts the, the release. It can be altered and resubmitted. And uh, chances are at that point, assuming that they are sufficient, it will be released at that time. We're going to take a break here in just a few minutes. When we come back, we'll take a look at what's uh, going on, what's gone on in the Olympic Games, which apparently are colder and more winter-like than is very helpful. They're telling us wind, ice, and cold are making this Olympics too wintry. Uh, Hence, it's earning its name. And we'll also talk about the love affair with Kim Jong-un's sister and the U.S. media. That and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Olympic figure skater Marai Nagasu, she made history Monday in Pyeongchang, South Korea, as she landed a triple axle during her performance, at least uh, a feat that's uh, performed by an American, uh, never been performed by an American woman at the uh, Winter Games. Now, were you watching that, Clark? Did you see this? Or did you watch the figure skating over the weekend? I didn't either. I'm going to have to go back and check that out. She's 24-year-old from Montebello, California. She skated first of five women in the women's free skate during the team competition um, in the ice arena, a performance for the record books uh, for her and for the U.S., um, uh, two Japanese skaters also have landed triple axles during the Olympics, but this was the first American. Excited fans and fellow skaters took to social media to cheer on the historic moment for both Nagasu and the United States, and uh, she made um, Olympic history with that feat. Congratulations to her. Also, Jamie Anderson defended her title in the Olympic women's uh, slope-style snowboarding on Monday, surviving some pretty treacherous conditions at Phoenix Snow Park to give the United States its second gold medal in the Pyeongchang Winter Games. She was one of the few riders in the final to navigate the tricky series of uh, rails and jumps uh, to do that safely. The wind wreaked havoc on the field, turning the final almost into a matter of mere survival. And uh, Anderson was one of the few riders in that final to navigate all of that. She posted a score of 83 in the final for uh, two runs, then watched it hold as the rider after rider either crashed or um, or bailed out altogether. Even Anderson wasn't immune. She washed out in her second run with the gold medal already wrapped up. So congratulations to uh, for another U.S. gold medal. As I mentioned, the Winter Olympics are supposed to be cold, of course, but uh, maybe not this cold. Wind and ice pellets left Olympic snowboarders simply trying to uh, stay upright in the conditions that many felt were unfit for competition. The best ski jumpers on the planet dealing with swirling gusts of and uh, biathletes aiming to shoot straight in what's uh, impossible conditions. All around the games, athletes and fans are dealing with conditions that have tested even the most seasoned winter sports veterans. The temperatures are very low. Um, They've hovered in the single digits, dipping below zero Fahrenheit with unforgiving gusts of winds up to 45 miles an hour, making it feel much colder. And organizers have uh, shuffled schedules, shivering spectators left events early because they just couldn't take it anymore. And of course, they're not exerting themselves. The raw air sent hundreds of fans to the exits on Sunday when qualifying was called off after women's slope style devolved into a mess of mistakes. And Monday's final started 75 minutes late of the 50 runs, 41 ended with a 
fall or a rider essentially giving up. The temperatures drop to three degrees Fahrenheit uh, with high winds. Uh, as I mentioned, Jamie Anderson won the gold medal. She watched most of her competitors struggle and then completing a conservative run that uh, paled in comparison to her winning performance at the X Games just uh, two weeks earlier. She says it's been absolutely petrifying, terrifying being up in the uh, that high in the air and having the gust of 30 miles per hour coming sideways at you. Uh, many of the snowboarders didn't think they could uh, that they should have been out there at all. Uh, you're going up the chairlift and you see these little tornadoes, says one Czech snowboarder uh, who finished 16th. And you're like, what on earth is this? Well, that ski jumping uh, giant netting was uh, set up to reduce the wind. Uh, it didn't help a whole lot, but they at least tried to do something about it. But it's made it very difficult uh, for athletes in that competition and in some other, and in others rather, as well that they as uh, as they anticipate the weather uh, remaining to be pretty um, pretty critical. Well, speaking of the game, some of you recall many years ago when CNN founder Ted Turner made some cringe-inducing bromides about North Korea. In 2005, he portrayed the murderous regime of Kim Jong-il, the father of current madman Kim Jong-un, who's not really mad, he's just outrageous, as fairly typical and not altogether lacking human decency. He deliriously pontificated, I am absolutely convinced that the North Koreans are absolutely sincere. I looked them right in the eyes, and they looked like they meant the truth. End quote. In reference to Kim, he stated he didn't look too much different than most other people. He added, I saw a lot of people over there. They were thin and they were riding bicycles instead of driving cars, but I didn't see any brutality. Wow. And the non-copus mentis gold medal goes too. Well, if you fast forward to today, meaning current time, and uh, Turner's impaired perception of North Korea is no different from what the media, particularly on the left, despicably showed during Friday night's Olympic Games opening ceremony. In fact, the Olympics were quickly tarnished by Trump derangement syndrome. Vice President Mike Pence, who was on hand for the ceremony, was eviscerated for his refusal to overlook North Korea's abhorrent and tyrannical dictatorship. North and South Korea had recently, and no doubt apprehensively, agreed to show harmony at the Olympic Games, such as uh, processing together for the opening ceremony and sporting a joint women's hockey team. That's their um, prerogative, and everyone hopes that something good will come out of it. But the U.S. certainly shouldn't be uh, shamed into uh, for its cautionary approach, rather, for the Koreans' decision and the inevitable outcome. According to the New York Times, Mr. Pence drew the greatest reaction uh, from uh, for where he did not appear, most pointedly at a dinner South Korean President Moon Jae-in hosted before the opening ceremony. That meant that he avoided spending much time with the North Korean delegation including Kim Jong-nam, the country's ceremonial head of state. Uh, Pence refused to stand when the combined Korean delegate uh, was ex- uh, accentuated during the opening ceremony. The Times wrote that critics view the snub as disrespectful of the athletes and his host, Mr. Moon. Well, naturally, um, they quickly pounced on Pence's stern but substantive conduct. This isn't surprising, but what's absolutely despicable is the length to which the uh, media outlets went to uh, show their disdain for the Trump administration and the love for North Korean communists. Kim Jong-un um, did not attend the opening ceremonies, but instead dispatched his sister, Kim Yo-jong. And she was uh, quickly adopted as the new face of the anti-Trump resistance. CNN, the same network on which Ted Turner extolled the virtues of North Korea some years ago, ran with the um, atrocious headline, Kim Jong-un's sister is stealing the show at the Winter Olympics. The New York Times wasn't much better, tweeting, without a word, only flashing smiles, Kim Jong-un's sister outflanked Vice President Mike Pence in diplomacy. 
really? Diplomacy? Reminder, North Korea is so impoverished that soldiers ransack farms for food while Kim and his family eat to their heart's content. And while precious money is diverted toward nuclear weapons proliferation, the people starve. The state has executed hundreds of innocent people, including Kim's own brother. It facilitated numerous global hacking campaigns. It's threatened time and time again to annihilate America and its allies, and some 300,000 people have defected since 1953. Who knows how many lost their lives trying or didn't try uh, at all out of fear. Well, complicit in all of this, Kim's sister and the media uh, want to slam Pence for not acquiescing to North Korean propaganda. By the way, she is uh, the head of propaganda in North Korea. Yo Young is just as ruthless as Yong Un is. Together, they've committed atrocities most Americans can't comprehend. And President Donald Trump knows that what North Koreans want is not uh, at all reflected in what it's trying to sell at the Olympics. The media in the age of Trump perpetually lecture us that love uh, uh, Trump uh, Trump's hate, unless, of course, uh, they can prop up someone who literally hates all that lives and breathes and who can serve to promote the uh, equally hateful agenda of trying to destroy the administration, even at the uh, at the cost of uh, North Korea. Well, CNN is getting dragged online for uh, for writing uh, the puff piece about North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's sister appearing at the Olympics there. Uh, the article published Saturday afternoon began um, with these cooing words about the woman who gave South Korean President Moon Jae-in an invite to visit North Korea. If diplomatic dance were an event at the Winter Olympics, Kim Jong-un's younger sister would be favored to win gold. With a smile, a handshake, and a warm message in South Korea's presidential guest book, Kim Jong-yong, or Kim Yo-yong, has struck a chord with the public just one day into the Pyeongchang Games. Wow. Wow. When Fox News reached uh, out for comments, CNN would not say whether it would uh, remove the story or discipline any editors over the controversial article, which was uh, certainly panned in the uh, on the social media. CNN anchor Chris Cuomo defended his uh, network by throwing in a dig at President Donald Trump. He tweeted to one reader, you don't think having a president who lies about what is fake and actually maligns the free press out of the convenience is a bigger reason for animosity toward us than some decide to cover this. So bringing Trump into it without regard to what the uh, North Korean dictator and his uh, propaganda sister have done is a pretty, pretty low blow. Keep in mind that uh, Kim Jong-un had a pre-Olympics uh, uh, parade that showcased ICBMs capable of striking the whole mainland of the United States. This is the pre-Peace Olympics. We'll tell you more about that and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, one day before the opening of the Winter Olympics in South Korea, the Kim Jong un regime displayed at a military parade the intercontinental ballistic missile, um, which, um, after its uh, maiden test flight last November, it was declared could reach anywhere in the continental United States. Now, that might be an overstatement, but nonetheless, it was displayed. Four hefty Hwasong-15 uh, ICBMs were showcased at Thursday's parade in Pyongyang. Uh, Kim Il-sung Square, each on the uh, nine-axle transporter um, erector launcher, as it's apparently called. Well, the Korean People's Army also showed off the intermediate-range Hwasong, which in the last test uh, proved to be more formidable than originally thought. Kim Jong-un and the uh, senior military brass are seen reviewing the missiles, the tanks, the armored vehicles, the troops, and 
uh, below zero temperatures at North Korea's uh, as they put on a massive uh, card display, including one spelling out the dictator's name. Uh, Kim was wearing a black hat and, uh, and clothing, told the assembled crowd the parade showed that the North Korean is now a world-class military power, urged the military to maintain a high state of combat readiness against the United States and its followers. So you'll have to forgive the vice president if he wasn't really ready to kowtow at the event uh, because Kim Jong-un's sister was cuter than him and uh, was uh, at the Olympic Games. David French in National Review points out that uh, understanding the uh, the media's ugly weekend is important. What's behind the fawning over North Korea, one of the world's most brutal regimes. He writes that when it comes to whitewashing North Korea, one mainstream media article is a problem. Two is a travesty. But what about three, then four, then five? What if some of them adopt a seemingly cele- celebratory tone as they recount alleged diplomatic triumphs over Vice President Mike Pence? Well, it's one thing to oppose the vice president, but in support of North Korea, what if others fawn over the uh, propaganda of one of the world's most brutal regimes? Well, that was this weekend, article after article, tweet after tweet. By Saturday evening, Federalist contributor James Hassan had cataloged a stunning series of examples. Um, stories from The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, CNN, ABC, CBS, NBC, NPR, Time, The Telegraph. Oh, and here are articles from a few other um, uh, uh, or rather a few weeks ago, warning that uh, North Korea would use the Olympics as a propaganda offensive. Good job, guys, apparently forgetting that article in favor of what they wrote on Saturday. And the hits kept coming. On Sunday, the New York Times published a news analysis uh, under the headline, Kim Jong-un's sister turns on the charm, taking Pence spotlight. Charm. She sat, she watched the Olympics. While some of the news articles were uh, more nuanced than the headlines suggest, the positive uh, publicity for the North Koreans grew so overwhelming that BuzzFeed, yes, BuzzFeed, felt compelled to slam on the brakes. It posted an article calling Kim's sister a garbage monster that began with a simple question, what expletive is wrong with you people? Well, that's interesting. It's an interesting question. Why would so many major media outlets start writing and tweeting similar positive messages about Kim's sister, North Korea's alleged charm offensive, its alleged diplomatic coup, and even North Korea's cheerleaders, as if they're all received the same set of talking points? There's no one single answer. A media fail, this large displays all the press faults at once. Partisanship, ideology, clickbait culture come together to create a storm of stupidity. Hmm. We can't pretend for a second that we'd see the same wave of triumphant headlines if Tim Kaine and not Mike, Mike Pence, rather, were standing grim-faced in front of Kim Yo Yong. Instead, they'd likely be a bout of moral clarity. In icy standoff, Kaine rebukes North Korean regime. Even the cheerleaders wouldn't be spared. Defectors detail the grim reality behind the cheerful facade. Reporters are human, and their, their near-uniform hatred of the Trump administration makes them uniquely vulnerable to false anti Trump narratives in much the same way that the near uniform admiration of Obama made them less critical of his blunders and more willing to accept his arguments. It's a simple fact that we've reached a point where American partisans will applaud when foreign leaders oppose or allegedly humiliate their domestic political opponents. Unless we think this is a progressive phenomenon, only consider this. Republican approval for Vladimir Putin almost tripled with uh, from a too high 12 percent to a disturbing 32 percent, even as the brutal dictator conducted comprehensive intelligence and military operations aimed directly at America's vital national interests. Partisans hate each other that much. 
And that's sad. But partisanship is an incomplete explanation. If the North Korean regime were perceived to be right-wing horror show, I sincerely doubt you'd see the same widespread acclaim. There exists a lingering and exceedingly strange willingness of some, even in the most elite quarters of the media, to whitewash or find the positives in the most brutal of left-wing regimes. We can forget the New York Times op-ed celebrating, or rather, who can forget, the idea that women had better... Mm, love lives under socialism, or who can forget the Times op-ed that declared, for all its flaws, the communist revolution taught Chinese women to dream big. Of course, they couldn't fulfill those dreams. You know the rest. For all its flaws, the communist revolution taught Chinese women to dream big. And let's not uh, get started on Cuba. Did the modern media give any dictator better press than Fidel Castro? But throw this soft spot for socialism into the dippy utopianism of the Olympic movement, and you've you've upgraded to weapons-grade gullibility. This is the point, every two years, where the world comes together and a collection of young adults are supposed to show us what unity looks like. And world leaders are supposed supposed to go along with the charade, smile and wave, charm the media, gush about the possibilities for mutual understanding and dialogue, meeting with defectors like Mike Pence rightly did, harshes the vibe. Finally, we can't overlook the role of the hot, uh, the hot take. We actually live in a world where a side eye is a thing, and the craving for instant content means that we debate endlessly about who one encounters that will be forgotten 24 hours from now. Though I use it all the time, I fear the phrase news cycles has become inherently deceptive, implying a process that no longer exists. No, we have a news moment, followed by snap judgments, and it becomes a true challenge to maintain perspective and keep your eye focused on longer, more meaningful political, cultural, and strategic trends. There is a a conversation to be had about whether Pence's trip to South Korea made an incremental positive or negative difference in American-South Korean relations, but relative to the immense generations-long challenge of dealing with North Korean nuclear programs, and the generations-long challenge of North Korean brutality and aggression, it's the most minor of conversations. When BuzzFeed is the voice of reason, that's a sign that prestige media has lost its way. The extraordinarily high stakes of America's confrontation with North Korea demands sober judgment and cool-headed analysis. It demands the best from the American media. The Trump administration's actions toward the Kim regime may well be the most consequential actions the the president takes, more important uh, depending on the outcomes than judges, taxes, or DACA. Yet how can we have confidence in news judgment and diplomatic analysis when this is what a news weekend can look like? Thoughtful members of the media lament the decline in public trust. They rightly point to bad faith partisan attacks as a partial cause, but they can never, ever stop looking in the mirror if they want to know why countless millions of Americans don't trust their reporting. These last two days could serve as Exhibit A to the collective American complaint. Again, writing for National Review, David French is a senior writer there. We had a conversation earlier in the day with Howard Kurtz, who writes on this very subject. Unfortunately, we had a technical glitch that destroyed that conversation. I was looking forward to leading into a to that, but I would certainly commend um, Howard Kurtz's latest book, Trump Trauma, or it's um, Media Madness, and it deals with Donald Trump, the press, and the the battle over the truth. It's published by Regnery, and again, I would highly recommend it to better understand the challenge that we face in trying to uh, understand uh, what's actually happening as opposed to uh, what we're being fed as news in a very uh, challenging environment uh, on all quarters of public uh, public leadership. The time is five o'clock. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. We'll be back.
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back six minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Iran unveiled a series of new homemade nuclear-capable ballistic missiles during military parades held over the weekend, just a day or two after they uh, were held in North Korea. A move that experts view as a bid to bolster the uh, bolster rather the headline. Uh, of um, countries around the world and the hardline ruling regime as dissidents continue efforts to stir protest. This is on the heel of an encounter between Iranian, an Iranian drone and Israeli forces. Iranian leaders showcase their ballistic missile capability. It includes a nuclear-capable medium-range missile. Uh, it appears to share similarities with North Korean technology, according to experts. The nuclear-capable missile can... Uh, uh, is capable of reaching Israel. In fact, they downed a drone earlier uh, in the weekend. The, the uh, missile um, can reach the country. It was uh, when fired from Iranian territory, and that raises concerns, of course, about an impending conflict between, the, uh, between Tehran and the Jewish state that could inflame the region. Iranian military leaders bragged the ballistic missile can be launched from mobile platforms or silos in different positions, can escape missile defense shields due to the uh, radar evading capability, according to reports. And the latest technology could further inflame tensions, of course, between the two countries. As Iranian dissidents continue to protest over the country's uh, ailing economy, the ruling regime continues to invest millions of dollars it received as part of a landmark nuclear deal with the United States on its military technology, specifically ballistic missiles that are subject to the ban under international statutes. However, Iran has not only continued the work, but also in Invested heavily uh, in its uh, since uh, in that work since receiving the the cash windfall from the nuclear deal. Conservative estimates from uh, open sources indicate that the Iranian regime has spent about sixteen billion dollars in recent years on its military buildup, rogue operations in Syria, as well as other countries. So it's not surprising that the people there are rising up, seeing so much of their. Uh, uh, wealth spent elsewhere. 39 years in, the Islamic Revolution has little to show for its decades in power other than growing the country's asymmetrical military uh, capabilities in order to continue their export of the revolution. That's an Iran expert with the Foundation for Defense of Democracy speaking to the Washington Free Beacon. Islamic Republic has uh, considerably grown the country's missile and rocket arsenal, both through production and procurement. The two missiles that were featured over the weekend include the uh, midi- medium range ballistic uh, missile that was modified and upgraded by the Islamic Republic. Um, it can strike Israel when fired from Iranian territory and on uh, in March of 2016 was flight tested while bearing genocidal slogans against the state of Israel, according to um, a, research, um, a researcher of the Iranian Missile Procurement Program. Iranian military leaders also rolled out a rocket called the Fajir 5 that is becoming a new favorite of Iranian-backed terror proxy groups operating against Israel. The Fajir 5 is an Iranian rocket. It's been uh, proliferated to anti-Israel groups like Hamas and Hezbollah. It can travel up to 75 kilometers. It's uh, therefore a long-range artillery rocket. It uses solid fuel propulsion. Uh, both uh, of these missiles uh, and the rocket represent Iran's commitment to developing standoff weaponry that uses uh, that it uses for purposes of deterrence and coercion. The new weaponry could fuel ongoing efforts by Congress to crack down on their continued proliferation of ballistic missile technology here in the United States, and a large part of which has been uh, incubated by the North Korean regime, which continues to have a technology sharing agreement with. Tehran. She'll forgive the vice president if he doesn't stand and kowtow to 
the dictator's sister at the Olympic Games. Meanwhile, Sports Illustrated is doing its part to address the objectification of women. Now, every year they have the Sports Illustrated um, swimsuit edition, which, of course, does not objectify women. But this year they've gone all in. Uh, They claim that they're solving the problem of objectifying women by running photos of women who aren't just scantily clad, but are not clad at all. They're painted with a few slogans. Um, This seems like something right out of a satire site like the Babylon Bee, but no, this is precisely what Sports Illustrated is doing to justify its annual swimsuit edition. This time, to highlight the objectification of women, they've eliminated the swimsuits. Having trouble with the math, but maybe you can figure out. This isn't satire. It certainly is an uh, award winner for the theater of the absurd, however. Mark Alexander points out that for some proper perspective on this issue, he turned to a friend, Jenny Baker. She's devoted much of her adult life to educating women about the terrible burden of distorted female images propagated by the media, particularly the suffering... um, Uh, This creates for adolescent girls. She's the author of The War on Normal. It's a book devoted to helping women find truth and contentment in their post-baby bodies. And she writes, the media is powerfully influential in defining what constitutes beauty. When women continue to see images which set that standard, they begin to believe that that's what they, too, should look like. Over time, we begin to believe we, too, should strive to comport with the mass media projection of normal. And if we don't comply, we are flawed. Regardless of the, uh, or rather, regardless of the SI issue, she observes since 1964, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue has been objectifying women, reducing them to nothing more than sexualized bodies. The positions, the facial expressions, the attire or lack of attire all communicate a message of, I exist for your pleasure. Well, this year, SI is attempting to attach. Uh, this um, disgraceful annual objectification of women to the hashtag Me Too movement, asserting that publishing photos of nude female models will help fight that objectification and the result, uh, resulting sexual harassment and assault. Again, this must be the result of the new math. And she notes, quoting her, Jenny, um, that Sports Illustrated is uh, promoting the idea that unless you look the way their models do and wear and pose the way they dress and pose, your body isn't to be celebrated. This can result in women feeling inadequate, rejected, even shameful. Well, SI female editor MJ Day, in an interview with Vanity Fair, no small irony in their vanities section, claims that she is thrilled that this Me Too movement is going on because I feel like it's going to change things for the better. Of course, it didn't cancel the swimsuit edition. It just, well further objectified women by removing the swimsuits. Day insists that her nude layout is about allowing women to exist in the world without being harassed or judged, regardless of how they like to present themselves. That's an underlying thread that exists throughout the swimsuit issue, she writes. Wow, she must be very flexible because the stretch she took for that one. Uh, While objectification can lead to harassment, how Day presents women is all about objectification in order to generate ad revenue and magazine sales. That's pretty much all it is. Day says her goal was to make the models as much participants as objects, thus inadvertently admitting to the objectification. She claims she is giving them a real opportunity to be who they are. Huh. Noting, you are always an actor. You are always a part of the photograph. You're always performing for something for the brand, the photographer, the spirit of the photographer. And now uh, you're uh, never really your most authentic self. So 
sprawling out with uh, without any clothing on uh, before a photographer who's doing all the things she just lifted out, the branding, the photographer, the, and so on, is somehow your authentic self. So paint some slogans on nudes. That'll fix it. Nothing says I'm not a sexual object like posing without any clothing. Well, day concludes uh, um, uh, of this uh, annual exercise in objectification. To be sure, she says, this year's swimsuit issue will still have the swimsuits and sandy beaches its readers have come to expect. Uh, These are sexy photos. At the end of the day, we're always going to be sexy no matter what is happening. End quote. On that assertion, she protests MJ Day. Uh, must be from some alternate universe, fighting the objectification of women by posting photos which objectify women. You can't alter the disrespect of women by objectifying them as a tool of pleasure. Well, Jenny concludes, this is the author, perhaps if Day wanted to change attitudes toward women, she would have featured photos of women doing the extraordinary things many of us do every day, rather than nude photos of women with cheap slogans painted on them. As for Sports Illustrated and MJ Day, I now call you hashtag one of them. Hmm. Sports Illustrated um, fighting to honor women by further objectifying them. Wow. 21st century logic. 15 minutes after 5 o'clock, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, we learned today that Equifax, the data breach that we learned about before the first of the year, that breach exposed more of the consumer's personal information than the company previously disclosed last September. So it was worse than we thought. I thought it was pretty bad. I couldn't imagine it being worse than that. Well, that's uh, according to documents given to lawmakers. Equifax originally said that that information accessed from some 145.5 million Americans included names, social security numbers, birth dates, addresses, and in some cases, driver's license numbers and credit card numbers. I mean, how could it get much worse than that? Well, now they are um, disclosing in a document submitted to the Senate Banking Committee that tax identification numbers, email addresses, phone Phone numbers, as well as the expiration dates for credit cards or issuing states for driver's licenses, may have also been exposed. Well, the Japanese drug maker says it has uh, developed a single dose pill that can kill the flu virus within a day. That drug is in the late stage trial and reportedly works more quickly than any other drug on the market to kill the flu. The drug likely won't be available in the, in the United States until next year. And people have been looking for a drug for the flu that doesn't have to be updated and changed every year. And maybe Maybe they've come up with one. Meanwhile, a climate troublemaker, La Nina, which is partly responsible for the extreme drought now scorching the southwestern U.S., California, is expected to fade away over the next few months, according to scientists. And, of course, they would be right. In its place will be the neutral phase of the Pacific Ocean climate pattern, officially known as INSO or El Nino Southern Oscillation. You might want to write that down. Uh, The uh, climate pattern marked by either unusually warm or cool seawater in the central Pacific Ocean can affect weather in the United States and elsewhere around the world. The Pacific Northwest may have had a La Nina winter, but a La Nina, uh, but not La Nina weather. Uh, The La Nina phase is defined by colder than average ocean temperatures in the Pacific. It's the opposite of El Nino. Inso neutral, colloquially called La Nada, is the midpoint between El Nino and La Nina. And it occurs when temperatures are near average in the Pacific Ocean. So it's kind of, this is where it should be, and now we're in La Nada. 
And although La Nina is on the way out, it's going to continue affecting temperatures and precipitation all across the country during the next few months, the Climate Prediction Center said. La Nina is going to decay, return to inso neutral during the Northern Hemisphere spring of 2018, the Prediction Center says. The forecast consensus also favors a transition during the spring with a continuation of inso neutral conditions thereafter. Wow, if you ever have a lull in the conversation, you can go right to this. The in-between ocean state of INSO can be uh, frustrating for long-range forecasters. It's like driving without a a decent roadmap and makes forecasting very difficult, say climatologists. Um, The INSO cycle primarily affects the United States weather in the fall, winter, and spring, and less so in the summer. It can impact, however, the Atlantic hurricane season, with El Nino favoring fewer storms, La Nina favoring more. So that's kind of what we can expect in the weeks ahead. I'm not quite sure what that means in terms of do I need a coat or not, but uh, there you have the broad swath of what they're looking at to try to eventually tell us whether or not we need to bring an umbrella. And just in time for Valentine's Day, a limited edition chocolate bar that's made. Now, I don't want you to feel like you need to get me anything, Clark, but a limited edition chocolate bar that is made from the beans of ancient cacao trees in Ecuador Sales for $385 may very well be the world's most expensive chocolate bar. Now, me, I'm pretty easy. Hershey will do me just fine. We make chocolate with the oldest and rarest variety of cacao in the world. That's a quote from Jerry Troth. He's a co-founder of Toac, an Ecuadorian chocolate company. Toac ages the beans uh, for four years in the French oak cognac cask which drives up the price tag. I'll take mine young. Thank you very much. The company has partnered with multiple retailers around the world, including Harrods in London, Two Beans in New York, Wally's Wine and Spirits in Los, An- Los Angeles, rather, as well as two locations in China. The beans come from a native variety known as uh, Nacanal and uh, were on the verge of extinction until Toth and his business partner. They stumbled across a, a valley in Ecuador that had a few of these old cacao trees left. We actually had DNA tests done to make sure they were 100% genetic matches to the uh, Nacanal uh, beans. It's national with a C. Uh, the company said it was, uh, it has rather planted a seed bank of these trees in Ecuador to ensure production over the next decade. So you might want to start saving up now because it will take you a full decade to save up enough to squander $385 on a chocolate bar. The partners decided to establish Toac in 2013 and produce limited edition bars for chocoholics around the world. Since its launch, the company's completely sold out each edition of the bar it has released with about 100 bars per edition. Our trees have extremely low yields, causing it to be limited on what we can produce, says one of the uh, owners. If you're on a budget, the company also offers a 355 chocolate bar that's been aged for two years. Now, that's a $10 savings, by the way, in a single malt whiskey cask. Doesn't have alcohol in it, but that's how it's preserved. Um, Anyway, it's uh, first chocolate bar, the El Nino Harvest, sells for $275. It's kind of like what you would do with a really expensive bottle of some sort of spirit. Our customers save it for a long time and wait for the right moment to break it out. Yeah, like your deathbed. That's about the only time you can afford to spend that kind of money on chocolate. Hey, taking a look at uh, what's coming up this week on Tuesday, we're going to talk with uh, Jonathan Morrow. He is going to talk with us about uh, the latest Barna Group survey, Gen X, the culture, beliefs, and motivations shaping the next generation. Give you a little jump on things and some insight into what young people are thinking and are likely to do. We're also going to talk with Phyllis Bennett and Whitney Woolard. She's going to be the keynote speaker at the upcoming Western Seminary Women's Conference, Ignite, Hope for a Broken 
Broken World. We hope to see you there. We'll give you a bit of a preview, and there's plenty of time for you to register. So uh, be sure to listen on Tuesday when Phyllis and Whitney will be joining me to talk about that. On Wednesday, we'll uh, host our India Partners Radiothon. And while it's a very sobering and difficult subject to consider, uh, the good news is we can actually do something uh, specific. We can do something constructive to change what's happening there for the lives in the lives of some of these very young children that include both boys and girls. So that's tomorrow, or Wednesday rather, the India Partners Radiothon in which KPDQ will devote uh, much of the entire day to drawing attention to the plight of these young children in hopes that you will respond and help us uh, put an end for some of them to this nightmare. On Thursday, we'll talk with Catherine Clark, Where I End, a story of tragedy, truth, and rebellious hope. She'll join us on uh, Thursday. And then on Friday, we're looking forward to uh, lightening up and enjoying a look at the lighter side of the news. So that's uh, at least an overview of some of what we are going to be covering um, this week. Also, KPDQ has started our partnership with a number of Christian schools around the Portland metro area, and uh, they are offering some significant discounts. You can check them out at kpdq.com, but we're going to be interviewing some administrators, principals, teachers. They'll tell us to whom we'll be speaking uh, in the next few days and uh, for the next couple of weeks. But check them out online, because if you are thinking about Christian education for your uh, sons or daughters, grandsons or daughters, this is a great time to look at some significant tuition savings. But that's going to begin this week, and we're looking forward to conversations with lots of educators in our community to give you a little bit of a glimpse of the, the approach that they take, the success they're having, and uh, so you can consider what's available in your area. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blinn for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.